The April 20th Mindful Parenting Retreat Day is filling up fast. Join me and other parents in Wilmington, Delaware for a day of rest and relaxation, mindfulness and mindful communication practices, and a live podcast too. And my special guest for the live podcast is, drumroll please, Lynetta Willis. You know her from episode 366 and 400. She is a psychologist and sought-after speaker who teaches her Triggered to Transformed program to struggling parents. Join us and bring a friend to this powerful day-long retreat in Wilmington, Delaware on April 20th, 2024. But hurry, space is limited. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat to get your spot now. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 114. Today, we're talking about meditation for fidgety skeptics with Jeff Warren. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. And Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you are thriving, when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I coach overstressed moms on how to cultivate self-awareness in their daily lives and to take family and life to a new level of peace and cooperation. I've been practicing yoga and mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting course, and I'm the mom of two girls who challenge me every day to hone my craft. Welcome back, dear listeners. So glad to have you here at the Mindful Mama podcast. Welcome if you are brand new. Welcome to the podcast. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation with Jeff Warren today. He is a meditation teacher and a writer, and he's co-author of Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics with Dan Harris, brand new book, which is great. And he's also the author of Head Trip, a guidebook to waking, sleeping, and dreaming. And I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. It was like talking to Jeff was like talking to my long lost meditation friend who totally got it. Uh, we really related in a great way about the practice. And I think he's going to help you understand the power of meditation in, at a deeper level. So some of the things you get to look forward to in this conversation are talking about the sacred dimension of practice. You're going to hear the most important equation that all humans need to know, and what Jeff thinks about teaching meditation, aka existence skills, to kids, about how to keep them compassionate and sane. So you are definitely going to love this conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. And we're going to dive in just a sec. I just want to let you know that there's two exciting things I want to tell you about. Uh, the first one's pretty awesome. It's super exciting for me personally. I just signed a contract with New Harbinger Publications. I'll be writing a book. Yay! And I am writing it. I'm already on chapter three. It's going to follow the, some of the teaching we do in the Mindful Parenting course. So I'm super excited about this. I'll keep you <laughs> abreast of how it's going. You know, it's interesting. That first chapter was really hard. And now the second and third chapters have been really flowing very easily for me. So I'm hoping it keeps going that way. So, so excited about that. And the title will be coming soon. We're still kind of talking about that. And then also coming up, I have another new thing coming up. And I'm going to be doing a free live training week called the 
Unmartyr Yourself Challenge. And it's for moms who are putting themselves last, who aren't taking time from themselves, and any any moms who want to really assert your value in the world and live at a and thrive at a, in a better way. And so you can find that at mindfulmamamentor.com slash unmartyr, U-N-M-A-R-T-Y-R, or you can all just put a link at the events page if that spelling's too much. So you can find all that at the events page. And that's going to work. I'm going to be doing that May 7th through 11th. And I'll be doing a free live training every single day for that. And I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope you'll join me and share it with your friends. I have a feeling that this one is going to be passed from word to mouth as much as possible. So share it with so many of your friends and and we can all unmartyr ourselves together. (laughs) All right, now on to this episode. Jeff Warren, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm so glad you can be here. Hunter, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I got introduced to you because I have the book that you co-wrote with Dan Harris, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. And I really felt like I had, I was excited to talk to you and had an affinity to you when you talked about in the book, you say, sometimes it feels lonely to be hanging out with a bunch of secular folks when you know the most important thing in the world is to understand the sacred fact that you're alive. And I was just like, amen, brother, (laughs) preach it. (laughs) So I love that. And I don't know what you can say about that now, but I want to know about your story, how you got into meditation and things like that. But it sounds like you bring things to a deeper level in this maybe relationship with Dan. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, Dan uh, (laughs) accuses (laughs) me of that. (laughs) That's cool. I love that, that to understand the sacred fact that you're alive, because we forget that pretty easily, don't we? Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the tension in the book is between Dan is very interested in presenting in a very rational way, all the kind of scientifically validated above board beneficial effects of mindfulness on stress and on reactivity and all these things, which are absolutely true and super important. But he often has a focus sort of on all the negative things it can help with. Whereas there's also a deeper dimension to it, which is sort of the the opposite of that. There is all the hard stuff it can help you with, but it's also all the wonderful stuff that it reveals. And that is sometimes doesn't get enough play in this sort of secular mindfulness world, that there is this very rich, deep, mysterious, contemplative dimension to practice, that the longer you practice, the more you connect to just the you know, the beauty and the mystery of being here. And that that sounds like a cliche when you say it, but the experience of it is so full and so rich. And it's so obvious to me that the longer I practice, the more that is available to me. And so instead of selling mindfulness on the way it helps with challenges, I think it's also to be able to talk about the depths of experience that it can bring you is important. And so we're always going back and forth in the book as I'm always like, wanting to start getting rapturous and mystical about the practices. And he's always trying to kind of get me to button down <laughs> because he doesn't want to freak out the, the scientists or something. It's just an ongoing dynamic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate the way you bring in the, the, that sacred dimension. I mean, I really do. I think that's 
very valuable, as is the like bringing it into the secular dimension, very valuable too. It's, it's a really nice balance that you guys strike there with that. So how did you get started with mindfulness and with your own meditation practice? Happy to talk about that. I just thought before, just, just to yeah. follow up on the last thing you said, the that dimension of practice that gets re- revealed, the part that is what we call the sacred part or part, that kind of intimacy that develops towards the world, that's really, you can be secular and have that experience. You know, there's nothing about it that says that you need to buy into anything other than your current worldview. I mean, I think people feel this as field naturalists and scientists and accountants and bankers, and it's a universal thing that emerges through practice for all humans, whatever your practice is. So that's kind of one of my interests is in trying to make what we might call contemplative insights or experience accessible to everybody. Saying, hey, this isn't special to, this isn't owned by spiritual contemplative techniques. This is a human thing or experience that we can access. So yeah, <laughs> thank you. That. Thank uh, you. Thank you for underlining that. I love that. Because I don't get to wax on about it. So you're the first person that asked me about that line. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, Yeah, yeah, no, but it's true. I mean, you're human, so therefore you suffer. Therefore, you know, we're human, we're alive, so therefore we have suffering where life is intense, life is hard, life is amazing, you know, it can be awe-inspiring. And for mindfulness to give us the ability to sit with the intensity of life and to feel that awe, I mean, wow, that's a huge gift. It's huge. Beautifully said. Yeah, beautifully said. And I think there's other practices that can help with that too. You know, it's not like mindfulness is a wonderful gateway into many other practices, both contemplative ends and humanistic and artistic that can help us connect to those qualities. So, but to answer your, your question in terms of how I got into it, it was a rather circuitous <laughs> roundabout way. I never in a billion years would have imagined I would come out as being a meditation teacher or I would ever even teach meditation or be write books about it. I, was interested in consciousness and the mind. And I wrote a book about sort of the science and the experience of having a mind. And it was a lot about waking, sleeping and dreaming and hypnosis and alertness and daydreaming. It was trying to understand the ways, different ways in which we're aware, but really looking at the science. And through that book, I started reading Buddhist books because I wanted to understand other perspectives and went to my first retreat. This is back in 2004 or something. And so it started out as like this academic-y kind of journalistic research thing that I mostly read about. But then when I started doing it, that's all of a sudden it was like, oh, wow, this is really going to help me (laughs) in my life because I'm really neurotic and ADD and I have all these challenges and I could immediately start to see how it could help me, although it wasn't necessarily an easy ride. You know, it's a meditation practice goes through its seasons (laughs) like anything else. So there's a lot of learning there. So how did it help you? Well, I guess, well, I mean, the primary way it helped me sort of at first was it allowed me to start to notice all of the neurotic ways in which I was in pain in my life and struggling and anxious and all my judgments around my, the fact that I had, I have ADD and my, all the ways in which I got dysregulated, I could start to see what was happening. Like I would start to notice the thought patterns that would take me into these like, terrible moods, you know, or I would start to notice the underlying, you know, feelings below my reactivity or like underneath the resentments or my, I could just start to see how I was all the, that psychological material was operating. And the act of being able to see it meant I wasn't owned by it in the same way. So I started to feel more free. I started to act more sane. (laughs) My, My relationships improved. 
so that was a major way. And then kind of what I said off the top, I, as I started practicing, part of what I could see was my own fear and desire to never want to stay still because I, I have to constantly be trying to control my experience because I'm somehow worried that things weren't going to work out or this constant exhausting wrestling with the world. And as I could see that and let that go, I started to feel more connected to my life, you know, to people around me, to just that this was a beautiful place to be the world before it didn't seem like that. It seemed like kind of, I wouldn't have articulated it exactly because it was unconscious, but I was in a more fearful state, you could say, or, or a less appreciative state. And so as I would practice more, I started just to be able to like, get out of my own way, basically, like my own, suddenly I wasn't in my head all the time thinking about what I think about this person. I was just with the person. And so the, I could then see who people were more fully. I could, my, my sense of compassion, my ability to be helpful, all those things increase like exponentially. It also really helped with my creativity a lot. Like, cause again, when you get started to get a, a bit settled and relaxed, then I find, and I'm not alone. I'm sure as a practitioner, you've had similar kinds of experiences where there's a lot of creativity, you know, there's a lot of energy to direct in a way that's more meaningful for yourself. So, you know, that's just the beginning. You, I could go on and on in terms of the ways in which it's transformed me, but there are also ways in which there's certain things it doesn't take care of. <laughs> you know, like there's still ongoing challenges around your personality that you just kind of got to learn to accept. You know, some healthy skepticism in my life has served me well. And if you're like that, if you can spot a too good to be true health hack from about a mile away, you read labels like it's your job, congratulations, you're a skeptic. And Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. I take Ritual's Essentials for Women 18 Plus every single day, morning and at lunch. And I am feeling great. I love this vitamin. Ritual's Essentials for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. Plus, Ritual Vitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp, and made traceable. They select lower carbon packaging, they prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients, and set ambitious climate goals. Plus, Ritual is a female-founded B Corp, which means they are responsible to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash mindful. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash mindful for 25% off. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. 
I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So I imagine the listener listening to this saying, you articulated the benefits in your life beautifully, but I imagine my worry is people get stuck on the things like, like it helped you notice the neurotic ways you were in pain. Like I imagine a listener listening to this saying, yikes, like I don't really want to know the neurotic ways I'm in pain. Like, isn't it better to just keep on going, you know, kind of thing. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, no, that's a very, actually very sensible response. (laughs) And I think, I think the usual way people do is like, yeah, we got our stuff. We have challenges in life. But you can't let those challenges, you know, keep you down or affect you from getting on with your responsibilities. So people kind of just stuff it down and get going and keep going. And that's a legitimate human response. The problem with that response is when you stuff it down, it's still there in your system, unconsciously motivating and kind of affecting how you're relating to your life and your challenges. And that what people often find is that they have, say, resentments around something and they squash it down. It just builds up. You know, it's like it just keeps coming back. It keeps going back. And each time it comes back, it comes back a little bit more. And eventually, those things can kind of erupt out into our life in, in a way and in, in a timing that we may not necessarily want. So practice is a kind of a way of very gradually, bit by bit, kind of opening yourself up to like, what is the full range of what's going on in your experience? And part of your experience might be some of these uncomfortable feelings. But as you begin to open to them and notice them, that actually allows the energy of them, you could say, to drain out. That's a bit of a weird language, but you could say it allows the habit of it to allows you to create a new habit around it. So instead of having the same habit of just of acting in that same way again and again, by looking at it and opening to it, you give an opportunity to have some space to create a new response. So it's very healing. You get the feeling from practice of like old patterns that were and old challenges and traumas and difficulties. You can kind of start to feel them get worked through, whether you're working with them explicitly or even in the background they happen just as you develop more calmness and more capacity to be with yourself. It's like it trickles down into the nervous system and some of the stuff starts to get worked through. So, but there is a belief around some people and I kind of, I think I share it that often the the most direct way out is through that. Sometimes we do have to look at some of this stuff to come to a place of greater kind of sanity and healing on the other side. So there, there can be a uncomfortable transition period, but, but even like I said, sometimes in other kinds of practices, you can just do a practice Without ever explicitly grappling with it, and it still ends up having a, a healing or a helping effect on that stuff. So everyone's a little bit different. Mm, yeah. So I teach a mindful parenting course, and I help parents look at you know their see some of their issues from when they were kids and their own parenting. And one of the things we really work with is practicing to become less reactive and to kind of you know and in a very practical effect like to stop ourselves from losing our SHIT as our kids, you know, like stop ourselves from freaking out and losing it. And could you talk to some of the ways that mindfulness can help us with that part? Yo, definitely. I mean, I think that's one of its best, its greatest strengths. It's natural to be challenged and to be triggered because we're all human. And so all our emotions are natural, you know, anger, sadness, fear, all those human responses to things. 
The problem is when they get kind of chronically stuck often, we're chronically in a hyper nervous or anxious state or chronically a little bit reactive or angry or chronically whatever it is. And when it's a chronic thing like that, it really helps with the practice because you're just able to start to notice how that pattern of response of reactivity is always there. And what happens is it comes up and where ordinarily you would just act on it. You're able to see it come up and feel it in your body. And instead of just going forward unconsciously because you notice it's there, there's a, you develop a skill of kind of, ah, kind of leaning back and sighing and letting that the desire to act out kind of almost get flushed through you. You know, it kind of passes. It's like a, emotions work on a bell curve. Reactivity works on a bell curve. There's an impulse that comes up really strong. But if you can just kind of hold and open to it, without trying to quash it, the whole impulse can kind of pass and it moves right through you. And so you're really able to start to notice that when that your kid says that thing that drives you crazy, you know, it's like you can feel your own, you know, anger around that and you accept the fact that you're angry because that's a natural human response. You let yourself feel that, but you don't act on the anger. You know, you you feel it without acting on it. And in, in that opening to it, in that allowing yourself feeling it, it actually starts to work its way out so that the next time there's not quite as much anger. So it slowly starts to work down that reactive hub. That would be kind of like a an idealized way of talking about how you work through it over time. Yeah, yeah. So it, it kind of talks to what you mentioned in the book that your teacher Shinzen Young said that suffering equals pain times resistance. Yeah. Big time. So this is like I, I think this is the single most important <laughs> equation that every human being needs to know in their life. You know, what it and to unpack it, what he's referring to, he's saying that look, pain challenge is inevitable in life. That's part of being a human being. But suffering is a product of how much we fight with that discomfort, how much we struggle with it or try to suppress it or whatever it is. And so how it works, you know, in terms of to make it that a vivid example, let's say you're meditating and you have pain in your knee. And this is normal. It's, you know, it happens, you get kind of body pain. What you notice when you're meditating is there's the pain in the knee. And then there's all the subtle ways in which you're sort of like, resisting or fighting that pain like your body's tense around it you've got an you know you're in your head you're thinking oh gosh i can't believe i'm in pain again there's images of your leg getting gangrene or whatever it is like all of the resistance balloons up and expands and becomes this really unbearable experience of being in pain with your knee so the suffering has uh, th that resistance has amplified now into this huge thing whereas if you just go straight to the sensation of the pain in the knee most of that falls away. And all there is is just the sensation of pain in the knee, which actually turns out to be a lot more bearable when you just focus on that versus all the other stuff. All that extra suffering goes away. So the same is true emotionally. You know, emotionally, we're, we have an emotional reaction of being angry with our child, for example. And then on top of it, we have our anger at ourselves for being angry and uh, our judgments around this. And then we have all the visualizations of how we're terrible parents and how that's going to play out down the line. And we basically go into this catastrophic spiral that amplifies the original challenging emotion. And with a mindfulness practice, if you just go in to say, oh yeah, here's this emotion, anger, I can open to this and feel it. And it is much more manageable than all that other stuff. And we find that just able, being able to open to it, allowing it, it can then pass more quickly. And all the feedback and all the extra suffering that comes along with it never got activated. And that is a game changer. Uh, it's a life game changer. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Uh, so suffering equals pain times resistance. Our resistance is like, 
are tensing up our body and mind against this thing that's already happening anyway? Our tensing of it, our exaggerating of it, so amplifying it, turning this uh, feeling. So we have a feeling of, say, we feel a little bit sad in our heart. And all of a sudden, we're thinking about everything that ever went wrong in our mm -hmm. life. And we're feeding that sadness. And now it's getting even stronger. And now we're catastrophizing. We're imagining the sadness will be with us <laughs> forever in the future. So this, this little bit of sadness that began as this fairly reasonable body experience that could have been managed very easily if we just opened to it and let it be there, now has become this dramatic, large, huge beast. And usually that happens all unconsciously. It just happens. It just starts to escalate like that. So if you can bring your consciousness or your awareness into the experience, then that whole giant expanding chain doesn't balloon up like that. And we can, and then we can survive. We, we learn that we can actually survive almost anything one moment at a time. And then more than survive, the thing that comes through on the other side of that is just all this all the beautiful stuff you get to notice in your life, the richness of nature and connections. And when you're not struggling with your experience, all that when a struggle kind of starts to settle, there's so much room to appreciate what's really there. Uh, so you have, you start to create a different feedback loop this time, a feedback loop that's more positive and nurturing and healthy. Yeah. It's interesting. Sometimes it boggles my mind how, how, natural that is right like how our body mind system was just you know obviously it was developed to survive right or evolved to survive not to feel good and and it's funny now how i see that so much like in my kids and my girls are 11 and 8 and i see that loop happening you know because like yeah. it's like there's an unpleasant feeling and then and then my daughter will start to think all these unpleasant thoughts that add to our unpleasant feeling, which makes it feel worse. Like I can watch that spiral happen in another human being. And it's crazy. It just is, it's for me, I feel so helpless in those moments because I wish I could help her, you know, I could have stopped that. But of course she doesn't want or, you know, hasn't asked for my teaching or anything in that moment. It would only make it worse and add anger to the moment. But it's fascinating to watch how normal and natural that is. And yeah. it's frustrating in some ways, you know? Well, it, yeah, I agree with you. I find it so fascinating. And it's it's very, it's deeply mysterious to me, you know, because I I think, I wonder why it happens for us. And there, I, I wonder if it happens in the same way for other animals. And I don't think mm. it quite does. Because I think a natural setting is that you get challenged, uh, an organism gets challenged, and there's the resources are summoned to make a response, and you do, you make that fight, flight, whatever the response is, and then once it passes, you reset to homeostasis, and you're back to kind of where you were before. But there's something about, I think, humans, and I think it has to do with our big brains, that where we're constantly making predictions about the future, that not only are we constantly sensing threats at a very, very, very rapid pace now, because all the threats are psychological and nuanced and cultural, you know, so there's that that's happening. But because we have such a big brain, somehow it's harder for us to let go and reset, come back to homeostasis. Like I know people who can, I have friends, I know meditators who can. And I also have some friends who are just naturally more resilient who kind of go back to the baseline. But I, there's now suggestions coming out that a lot of, for humans, a lot of us have, have had developmental challenges when we grew up, and that created these chronic patterns of kind of reactivity and stress and an inability to reset. So it's very interesting that, like, why is it that, with, that, that this happens with humans? Does it happen with other animals as well? You know, and bringing that perspective into things as a parent is really, 
I mean, I think that all the stuff happening in the developmental role with parents around attachment style and all the understanding that's coming up there is huge for understanding why some of this stuff happens. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, in meditation, we're kind of looking at like our ego, which wants to keep us as this sort of separate self, right? And kind of looking and seeing and understanding that that's there, starting to see it. And then for me, seeing then in my child, the development of that, which is of course so necessary for life, but it's also like, oh, it's so, it's so crazy. Yeah. You write in the book, I love this little sentence that you, you put, meditation is like life skills for dummies. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to expand on that? Oh, sure. Well, you're, you're, I'm so happy because you're picking up all the things I most was, felt the most strongly about in the book. Yeah, I feel like, so I'm very interested in how, I love, I love mindfulness, but really I love practice and thinking about practice and thinking about how, and trying to understand how people live more fulfilled lives and how they suffer less and what are the things that we do. And there are so many different kinds of strategies that human beings use of which mindfulness is one. Can we talk about the difference briefly between meditation and mindfulness? Oh, sure. I would say, well, they're very related. It's sort of, I would say meditation is maybe a larger category. The basics of meditation of just getting concentrated on an object and letting yourself get settled is sort of universal to every culture. You know, there's versions of that and within the Abrahamic traditions or secular versions of that. They're all over Eastern and Southern traditions. But mindfulness in particular is sort of doing that, but having an added curiosity about the actual experience itself. So being aware of the subtle dimensions of the experience. So instead of, for example, getting concentrated on your breath and just getting settled and kind of drifting off, it would be getting, you'd be getting concentrated on your breath, but you'd be staying aware of the sensation of breathing and noticing all the little ways in which it changes. And, and by staying awake and aware in that way, we start to get all these insights into our own unconscious. And eventually, if you go deep enough into the whole nature of the mind itself, that's kind of the more traditional Buddhist way. So that's, what my, I, that's how I would describe mindfulness as opposed to meditation. But uh, on another level, the, there's a dimension to mindfulness that's quite, that is around in lots of different cultures. The idea of being aware and noticing how, what's going on in our experience and, and staying awake and alert and being curious about that. That's a kind of skill that, that you can find in lots of different kinds of techniques and traditions, including humanistic and secular ones. So what I say in the book is when I was looking for what was so, what I thought was so great about mindfulness and not to create a competitive competition with the other techniques, but what I particularly liked about it was it was a way to do this in the moment. You know, that's why I meant it was life skills for dummies. I don't know how to live a good life. If I have to ask that to myself, I have some ideas, but it kind of overwhelmed me at a certain point in my life. But I can learn by mindfulness how to be in this moment. And the way I am is being open, being concentrated, being clear. It teaches you the skills in the moment of how you need to be in that moment to, to suffer less and be, you could say, be more fulfilled. And eventually, you put enough moments together, you start to get a life. So what's great about mindfulness, you don't have to know the big picture of your life. You don't have to figure out the best strategy. You don't have to get everything right. You just, all it asks you to do is how can you relate to this moment now in a way that's more open, more sane, and more kind? And in learning how to do that, we then learn how to do that to our lives. And that's something I can get my head around because it's, because I'm not necessarily gifted in the big picture, but I can do the moment by moment thing. So, mm, 
I love that explanation and that description. That's really beautiful, Jeff. And we're going to talk about sharing mindfulness with kids, and you've done some stuff with that, but I'd love for you to speak about this idea. Well, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about, actually. For me, it was really heartening to read in the book the story of Dan writes about meeting you in person for the first time, and you're this meditation teacher, and you'd come off a 30-day meditation retreat. And then you met in New York, and you were, <laughs> I hope you don't mind me sharing, but you were hungover from hanging out with your friends the night before. <laughs> and for me, that was like really kind of a heartening thing to hear, not because I'm like an, you know, a heavy drinker, but because I, I teach mindfulness, and it's something that's an incredibly, incredible part of my life, and it's been transformative for my life. And I also impart practice in a tradition that there's some pressure to, like, for instance, not eat meat, to not have alcohol and different things like that. And I appreciate, I just really liked having an example of somebody who's really conscious and really wanting to teach consciousness to others and, and share it, but is also occasionally going out with his buddies and having a good time and being a little hungover the next day. So... <laughs> Thank you for that. No problem. <laughs> Thank you for thanking me for that. <laughs> I do like to go with my friends. I mean, it's not like when I was before, before I ever meditated, I was a big, I loved going out dancing and partying. And that was my, I was part of a, you know, big group of friends that did that. And I still have those friends. You lose interest in that, a lot of it through the practice, like the unconscious parts of that. Mm-hmm. But I super enjoy having a few beers. I mean, I'm Canadian. I love beer. <laughs> I love, so I love having a few drinks. And sometimes, you know, we'll have a blowout. Not as much as I used to, but it does happen occasionally. And I love to be able to release the energy that way. And it's just part of, I mean, what's the point of these practices if it's not preparing you to celebrate your life even more fully and connect to your friends? And, you know, and it's not like you're suddenly, when you start practicing, you become a different kind of human being. You know, you're still the same person <laughs> you always were. Maybe just a little more sane. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. So uh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I, cause I love that. I mean, I feel like it's the middle path, right? You know, completely. So what about this idea about meditation is self-indulgent? Because I work with a lot of moms who have trouble putting their needs first, have trouble acknowledging that they have needs to take care of themselves. And so what, what do you, how do you answer that charge, I guess, of meditation? Like, oh, I'm going to take this time for myself to just sit and do nothing? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a very common response. It's something that I, I heard a lot when we were crossing the country, Dan and I. And, and it's usually from people who are caregivers or, or responsible, have a lot of responsibilities, and they don't feel like they can take that time because there's so much that's required of them from these other folks, which is totally understandable. And I guess for me, it's really, really clear what the relationship is. You know, if you don't, take care of yourself to a certain degree, then you're not going to be very good at taking care of those others. And you, where you don't, like what happens is you start to build up resentment and you start to build up and you start to respond in a less compassionate, in a less helpful way. And actually, so there are people who get, start to get burned out in their roles uh, as parents, as caregivers, and they actually start creating more problems for the kids than they're helping, you could say. I mean, I'm just saying it's a human thing that we all do, but, and there's going to be times when you're not going to be able to get that time for yourself that you would need, obviously, and there's a period of sacrifice that's there. But to be able to, to reset, to take care of yourself when you need it, to get that little bit of time is what gives you the resilience to come back and really be present for the people you're caring for. 
So it's literally like the old thing of the oxygen mask. You know, when you, you put the oxygen mask on yourself and it doesn't need to be a huge amount, it gives you then the, then you're able to get it onto the other person. And, and then there's also a, a kind of maybe a broader answer, which is that one of the things you start to see in practice very clearly is how interconnected everything is, how the way you act responds, how you are affects other people around you. And it just cascades out like this. And so if you're hurting, you're not getting the things that you need, that is really influencing other people. So I know for me personally, I take practice because it's basic interpersonal hygiene. I'm a better partner. I'm a better husband. I'm a better friend. I'm a better son when I've done, when I can take a little bit of time for myself and just sort of reset and you know, hug a tree here. And it's the same with, it's, it's why people work out, you know, to get a workout, to walk in the woods. It's all part of the same thing. Having a little bit of self-care really it goes a long way. I love that interpersonal hygiene. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to steal that phrase. That's so cool. Yeah, that interconnection is so true. Hey, are you a parent of a teenager? Are you feeling overwhelmed about how to be what they need while also holding limits and boundaries that keep them safe? Are you tired of conversations that negate how messy this season of parenting is? Well, I've got you. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline trainer, parent coach, and the host of the Joyful Courage podcast. Every week I come to you with an interview, digging into tough topics with experts I trust and solo shows that go deep into the personal growth and mindset needed to raise teens in a way that grows them into confident, capable young people. I am not afraid of getting real about the intersection of conscious parenting and the teen years, while also bringing in vulnerability, humor, and lightness. I'm walking the path with you and honored to serve. Listen to Joyful Courage on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. So you've been doing some work too with sharing meditation with kids is that how tell me more about that what is how is that working because it's interesting because I feel like as parents a lot of parents want to just jump to let me just fix my kids and share this thing with my kids and I'm like well you know 
our kids want to see us walk the talk, right? So they want to see our example of how we're taking care of ourselves. And I feel like that's like probably most important in a lot of ways, but there have been so many ways. It's really interesting to see how it's really, people are really bringing it to kids and there's a lot of great results. So tell me about the work you're doing with that. Yeah, well, I'm excited to, to mention a little bit about it. I, I think I do think that, you know, the way we are as role models, as parents and friends, and is that's humongous. You know, that's like so much of what, of what is, ends up being so helpful for our kids is having those good role models. And having good role models is you're basically training kids how to be. You're, you're training ki- kids how to respond to situations, how to be more compassionate, how to be present, how to deal with adversity and challenge, and how to be resilient. All those things are modeled by us. But those things are also all skills that can be taught. Absolutely, they can be taught. Like what meditation is, what all practices are, are they're basically, they're life skills. You're teaching existence skills, how to exist in a way that's more focused, more present, more compassionate, more open, more sane. So the idea that we had, my partner and I, Kristen Chase, was she started a group called Kitty Evolve, which is, was teaching mindfulness and emotional regulation, emotional intelligence skills to kids. And then she realized there was a real space to do something like this for, to create little audio tracks, to create an app for it. So, so she asked me to do some, and it turned out to be the most fun I've ever had. I basically get to create, I just think about different scenarios that kids would be in, different challenges. And I try to think of a way to teach that in a kind of guided practice that doubles as a life story. So the practice, it's like you tell this super imaginative story around say, being a robot and having this big robot heart and seeing people and different people with challenges and you open up your robot heart, you breathe in your robot heart, or you learn ninja skills, like you're in a situation which is really challenging and and for the kid and how can you open up to, how can you teach the kid to notice what's going on in their body and not necessarily act from a place of super reactivity. And so finding these ways of teaching these subtle skills using super imaginative fun stories with sound effects and special effects and that double as bedtime stories. And, and what we found in the past two years have been testing them is first of all, kids go crazy for them because kids are really good at this. They're incredibly plastic and adaptable. They, as soon as you introduce an idea to them, they can go right there. Their imagination is captured. They can start to, they don't have all the hangups that adults do around whatever it is. They're able to kind of connect right into the imaginative framework that you're kind of giving them. And then, and you often get them to try to embody something in their body. And the kids just are like, they're right in there. You know, it's like, it's, it's listening to a really cool story, except now they're acting it out in a way. So the idea is that you go to this, you can actually listen to them. There's a ton of them online. They're all free under, if you go to Kid Evolve, you can see some of the ones that I've done. That's uh, K-I-D-E-V-O-L-V-E. And there's one like Can of Delight and Ninja and like Robot Heart, all these different ones. And basically the kids have them on in the background or the kids just list them on their headphones and with parents or without. And it, it gets them to rehearse these different kinds of social, emotional, mindfulness skills. And what they find is that they end up, we found that they ask the parents for them. They'll start to just do it automatically at home. They start to do them in school. The, the parents that we've shown them to are really into them. So it's so fun. I mean, and I guess how it's different is there's some other ones that are, have been done for kids that are out there but they tend to kind of take the adult, sober, boring meditation mm-hmm. and try to just translate it to the kids as opposed to doing one that's just weird and crazy and has jokes and sound effects. And so that's what we try to do in music. And so that's what we try to do. And it's just like I get to connect to my inner 
kid when I do it and I get the satisfaction of these all these kids just telling me how much like it's weird knowing that these kids are every night they're doing these they, they'll ask for this story before they go to bed or they'll want to once a week they'll want to check in with this particular story and and you have kids coming up to you and I'll get emails from parents saying wow I really love this so I'm like I'm overjoyed to be doing this and it's really satisfying and I think that the significance is huge you know because if you can get teach kids this young it's for kids five to twelve they can begin to develop these really healthy habits that really help them in a huge way as they get into teenage years and get into adult years. So yeah, I'm very excited about it. Yeah. I mean, these are the skills we need, right? Like how to be, how to be safe. I mean, when I look at every problem we have in the larger world, like almost all of it can be traced back to people being unable to sit with their difficult feelings. Exactly. It's, um, and you know, I wish I, I wish I had this stuff when I was a kid because I had a really hard time as a kid. You know, I was super hyperactive and ADD, and I was in trouble all the time and criticized all the time, and I just bottled it all up. Talk about that earlier strategy of bottling up. I didn't know how to. I just kept acting out. So all I kept taking in was a message that how I was sucked. <laughs> so yeah. I bottled it all up and it came out as anger and resentment. I was in even more difficult for my parents. And my parents had no language to help me talk about the inner emotional. They didn't come from a world of like being paying attention to that stuff. They didn't know that stuff was important. You know, but if you have a sensitive kid, that's your reality is you're inside all this stuff. You need to learn these skills somehow, whether it's a skill. If you're lucky, you get it through your role model of your parents. But sometimes we don't have that. And even if we do have that, it's still helpful to have it pointed out in an explicit way. And so, I, I mean, I think that's why I'm so motivated because I just, I remember my own childhood and I, I still I have friends with kids and I can see how they're, you know, for kids, there's a lot of challenges. I think you take things so seriously. We think, oh, why are you scared? You're going to school. It's not a big deal. You're just going to school. But it's, it's the whole world for your kid. It's the whole world that this person has said this thing to them and now they're nervous about going in there. And they don't, they don't have an adult perspective the way we do. So to begin to offer some skills, I think is, I think it's super awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. I really appreciate that. And like I said, my daughter listened to the ninja meditation and she liked it, I think. But then she said, I don't know. She said, there's no like sticks. Or something. <laughs> no like, no nunchucks. Yeah, there are no nunchucks. She was disappointed. <laughs> Note to self, put in the nunchucks. Put in the nunchucks. This is the kind of feedback I need. <laughs> <laughs> this is so cool. I, I love that this is just spreading this work. It's amazing. So there is one other thing that I want to ask you about before we let you go. Just, I could talk to you about this stuff for all day because I'm just absorbing it all. It's so great. So... I want to hear about the no fear practice and being on the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it is one I do. So I, I like to dance, you know, I never, but I was always slightly self-conscious though, cause I'm not particularly skilled <laughs> in coordinated or rhythmic, but I always would like to go dancing with my friends. And so I kind of figured this out when I was younger of the way I would work with that self-consciousness would there's different ways I did I figured out different practices this is even before I started meditating like one was I would just sort of notice where I felt self-conscious and I would kind of be aware of that and then in a weird way almost dance with the self-consciousness because it would cease to be a problem which is kind of like an early form of mindfulness I guess uh-huh. um, but the other one was I would just decide to I would just basically decide what would it be like if there was nothing to be if everything was totally fine right now what if there was nothing to be scared of just as a mental experiment? I'd be like, what if there was absolutely no reason to be fearful or to be nervous right now? 
what if everything around me was inherently benign or my friend in this particular dance context? You know, you can do it walking down the street too. And I would just pose that as a kind of question for myself. And I would try to actually frame my experience as though that were true. And what I found and what many, this is more of a top-down, what's called a top-down practice, but it's actually a way in which lots of traditions work, particularly what are called non-dual traditions. But what I would find is when I would just kind of make that, when I would do the thought experiment, I would just pretend that actually it would work. All of a sudden, I would just feel enormous ease. I would realize that all of my fearfulness was just in me. And I could just as well have an attitude of being totally confident and feel and feeling safe and secure in my life. That uh, the fear or the nervousness to the self-consciousness was a habit. And that this other habit was also available if I wanted to do it. And so I would just practice that. And I'd find that it would work. You know, it would, it would suddenly take away the, the bite of, the, of feeling self-conscious and I would be able to relax into it. And I've had experiences where it really stuck for long periods of time, you know, for hours and even days where suddenly this place of fundamental kind of safety and connection, you know, that would be available. So I would just encourage people to, I mean, this is what's so cool. You can practice is playing with your experience of reality. You can choose how you want to be in the world and you can just rehearse that, deliberately rehearse it by, by trying to connect to that quality and staying with it for a little while and you forget, you get back to your thing and then you do it again and eventually it just becomes a habit. And that's what meditation, that's what meditation practice moves from the cushion into your life. That's how other practices work. They become these new default habits. And it's wonderful and extraordinary that that's the case, you know, that we have that much, it's very empowering that we have that much control over how we, how we are. So that, you know, that's another, you know, I run something called the Consciousness Explorers Club here in Toronto. It's a group also for people anywhere in the world. And we're all about exploring different practices and, and how they can help us be more present, be more whatever it is. So no fear practice is an example of one you might practice. And it's just, these ideas are just, just try a practice, just like you would try listening to a piece of music and see how it affects you. And uh, it's amazing. That's so cool. So it's basically like fake it till you make it, which kind of has a bad rap, but I, I see what you're saying. So this idea of like, you're saying in non-dual traditions. So for the listener, what I imagine you're saying when you're talking about that are traditions where there's not a separation between body and mind, separate self, separate from all of the rest of existence. Yeah, yeah, it's actually more like I was using it more. It's a category of spiritual practices uh-huh. that, are, that, that emerge out of Hinduism mm-hmm. and that yeah, are basically yeah. about in the moment. So if you've ever read an Eckhart Tolle book, for example, or a Michael Singer book, those are basically offering a non-dual perspective. They're, they're a set of teachings that describes what the experience of self and world would be like if, if there was no duality. If there was just the whole, you don't have to say whether, argue whether it's true or not. You don't have to get into kind of empirically saying it's true or not in terms of the objective world. You just say, hey, what if you, there was just one thing? What if it was just that mm-hmm. everything you're looking at is part of one single process and we could experience ourselves as being part of one single process? If we imagine that that's how the world is, what would then follow from that? What, would, what are some of the natural consequences of, of acting in that way or, be, or, or experiencing things in that way? And what people find is, because some people say that they are indeed in that place, is that there's a sense of safety, connection, of intimacy, of, of oneness, of, that all, a lot of our challenges go away when we, we're no longer trying to kind of protect the ego. And you can actually just do it as a cognitive reframing exercise. And that can, that's how, quote, non-dual teachers do it. They just say again and again, there's nothing to do. <laughs> you know, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, everything is one. 
and that most people are driven crazy by it and find it super annoying. But some people go, oh, wait a second, what if that were true? And then they, they click into it being a little bit more true for them. And every time you, you try to connect to that, every time you do that, you can connect a little bit more and eventually it can become a new baseline at which you operate. And that's, that's absolutely legitimate. I mean, there are plenty of people I know who operate in, a, in that kind of a space and that's, they say that's what their experience is. So it's just something to try and it might, if it resonates with you, you know, if it doesn't, then <laughs> you don't have to. It's like um, my teacher Thich Nhat Hanh says that you can just smile and your smile will bring you happiness, you know, and, and that's a very yeah. simple example, but it's just that, you know, we think it maybe always has to be sort of inside out, but it can be, you're pointing to this idea that this practice can be outside in. It can be a practice that we're saying, I'm going to just practice this thing. I'm going to decide, hey, maybe today I'm just going to totally feel like I'm going to decide it's the greatest day and then act as if and see how that goes kind of thing. Exactly. And the proof is in the pudding. Try it and see. If you try that and it kind of does work for a little while, then there's something to it. I mean, the direction, the arrow of causality in a practice kind of goes both ways. So, yeah. and we kind of, it just works differently for different folks with different nervous systems. So you kind of got to try it for yourself to see, hey, would this work for me? For some people, it doesn't so much. For others, it does. But even for those who, for whom it doesn't work so much, that's why you practice. You know, the more you repeat a practice, mm -hmm. the easier it gets. So you kind of, my big interest is in just helping people connect to some practice that works for them. It doesn't have to be exotic. And then you kind of work from there based on how they are. But it is helpful to have these practices because they can really be these great supports for us and, you know, when life gets <laughs> challenging. So what do you recommend, Jeff, for the person who's listening who's saying, wow, this meditation sounds great. Like I want to feel saner and calmer and less anxious and all those things. And But they have a full life and maybe a couple little kids. <laughs> and and what do you recommend for that kind of person? Yeah, well, that that's definitely the challenge. My friend says this is the rush hour of our lives. <laughs> you know, you've got, you've got a few kids, you're in the middle of your busy professional career, you know, it's like, it will never get busier than this in some ways. So, so first, I have full empathy for people in those challenging situations. But I guess I would say two things. One, I would say, if, if it does interest you, the first one would be, is there a way to kind of work smart and sneak in five or 10 minutes into your busy schedule? So because five or 10 minutes does count, you know, it's just like a little bit of a reset to have for yourself. And I can give you a very simple five-minute practice to do. But I would say, is there a part, like maybe you drop your kid off at school, and so you're sitting in the car, and there's actually a moment where after you do that, where you're sitting in the car, and you've got five minutes you can sort of take for yourself there. Or a moment when in your home office or in your bedroom, maybe first thing in the morning or before you go to sleep at night, or just trying to find a, a spot in your day. And you can kind of look at where the transition points are in your schedules, and sometimes you can fit a little piece in there. And so then I would do, and I would just say, yeah, like a little five or 10 minute practice of closing your eyes if that feels comfortable or maybe you have them at half mast and not making it a big exotic deal, just taking a few deep breaths. And as you breathe out, kind of letting yourself settle a little bit, imagine breathing at any tension and just letting yourself sort of see if you can find something enjoyable about just sitting with yourself, just sitting there and nothing much needing to happen. It could be as simple as that or following the breath and seeing if you can find something a little bit soothing, especially about the out-breath. And once you understand the principle of equanimity, which I unpack <laughs> in great detail in the book, you know, that's really the, the foundation. The equanimity is just deciding to not be uptight, going, okay, this may be a disaster. I may have all kinds of thoughts and anxious feelings still there, 
not fighting with them, letting them be there in the background and sitting anyway. And just if that works for you, that can be a nice little habit. And for some people might want something a little bit more movement-based. You can do a similar thing, but just maybe move your hands a little bit or, or do it standing up. But even just that will give you a little bit of a reset and it can start to give you a taste for, for feeling a little bit more sane and centered in your life. And as we do it, you may start to find there's more opportunities to take another few minutes here, another few minutes there. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I would say is once you learn the skills, you can actually apply them on the fly. So you can do a little 10 second hit right here. You can, every time you're being challenged by your kid or someone, you can, like I have a practice in the book called Surf the Urge, which is just stopping when you notice that you're challenged, noticing where you feel that challenge, like in your, the tension in your body that's starting or the, the part of you that wants to throttle <laughs> your kid and just like, Ah, breathing into that, relaxing, kind of settling back and letting that work through you. That little tiny practice, which can take 10 seconds, can be a real game changer. So there are ways of working smart, of just kind of peppering your, your day with little, with little practices uh, until you have more room to do more, if you are motivated to do that. Thank you so much. Jeff, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. I recommend everybody check out the book, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and that's with Dan Harris and Jeff Warren. And you guys go on a road trip, and it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> and I'd love for, and where can we, people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? And um, we'll definitely include a link to the kidevolve.com in the Mindful Mama podcast show notes, but where can people find out more about you? Sure. Thank you. Well, so there, I have a personal website, jeffwarren.org. So I have lots of free meditations there and writing up there and different kinds of stuff. And I have a newsletter I send out once <laughs> a blue moon. I'm not very good at it. And then there's, I also do stuff through the 10% Happier app. So it's a really great meditation app for adults. And I do a lot of, I have a lot of meditation content on there. And then the Kid Evolve stuff is, there's a link through my website, but again, kidevolve.com. There's all these free ones up there you can listen to. And actually, we're interested in people's feedback. So if you listen to it and your kid liked it, we're interested in kids' feedback. If your kid thought, hey, this is awesome and why, you could always send us a note. There's contact through the Kid Evolve page or through my page. And actually, we're looking for, we're kind of looking for potential, we're trying to get it all, the app built and everything. So we're looking for potential partners, people interested in creating synergies there. Like we're just kind of learning about that business world too. That I'm not so much in charge of that. <laughs> my, my partner is more, but we're, so if you're, if he sounds like a cool cause and you're interested, you could always get in touch about that as well. Cause we're looking for, you know, kind of partners to help make it happen. But the kid stories are all up there for people to listen to. Jeff, thank you so much for the work you put out there in this world. I really think that your clarity and your down-to-earth nature and your just the way that you are in the world as far as the way you speak to this and the way your humanity it's really a breath of fresh air for me and it's refreshing and i'm sure it's it's creating incredible ripple effects so thank you so much for that no you're very kind hunter thank you it's a super pleasure chatting with you i hope you're you just keep up the great work your podcast is awesome Don't you love Jeff? He's great, isn't he? I just love that equation is so powerful that suffering equals pain times resistance, right? If we could only remember that and kind of soften into these situations, and we can. More and more with practice, we can do that. 
So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please do subscribe and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store and or Stitcher or wherever you listen. That really helps out a lot. And when you leave your rating and your comment, I read every single one of them. It really makes me feel great to hear them. Yeah, read them. If you have any questions, of course, email me at hunter at mindfulmamamentor.com. And don't forget to join me for the Unmartyr Yourself Week. And you can find that at mindfulmamamentor.com slash events or mindfulmamamentor.com slash unmartyr. Either one will take you there. And uh, that's it. I'm wishing you a beautiful week. I hope you got a lot out of this. And I hope that you have some some joy, some peace, and you practice your your meditation this week. Dive in. You can do it. You can do it. It's life changing in, in so many ways. So wishing you a beautiful week, my friend. Namaste. Are you a mom who wants to feel less stressed and enjoy motherhood more? Do you want to be calmer with your kids and be more present for all of your life? I'm a mom who has gone from really being stressed and yelling when my kids were young to having a more grounded, more at ease relationship with life and having more enjoyable, cooperative relationships with my kids. And I've shown hundreds and thousands of women around the world how to do this. And I want to show you how to do it too. So if you are currently feeling stuck or stagnant, this is definitely for you. I've created a free downloadable audible training, Mindfulness for Moms, the superpower you need. And it will show you how to respond rather than react, how to let go of stress and feel more grounded in seconds, how to have a smoother day today and become more present for your kids for a lifetime. To get on on this audio training absolutely free, simply visit the website www.mindfulmomguide.com. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking